As you can see there in the bulletin, we are this morning returning to Luke chapter 24. The, the penultimate sermon and reading from this glorious gospel. As next week we will look at the final three verses, verses 50 to 53, as we celebrate Ascension Sunday together. But this morning we want to look at this section of Jesus' appearance to His disciples beginning in verse 36 and continuing to verse 49. This is God's Word. As they were talking about these things, Jesus Himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. And then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we now ask you in the few minutes that we have in your word that you would guide us, that you would instruct us, that you would lead us in the way everlasting, that most of all, you would show us Christ, and in showing us Christ, you would give us a compelling sense of call to share Him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we want to look at this passage this morning under three headings that I think teaches us so much about the nature of these post-resurrection appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ and teach us much about the nature of the mission of which we are called. We want to see this morning who Jesus is in the first place. That He is our resurrected Redeemer. And then secondly, we want to see what Jesus addresses. Namely, our troubles and our doubts. And then thirdly, we want to see why Jesus comes. And we see that he comes to bring us peace. 
Now, you know it's my tendency to want to say everything about everything all of the time. I'm going to do the very best that I can to stick really closely to just a few important things that we need to hear together from the Word. And I've got one more shot at Luke next week, and then we're done, believe it or not. And so we've got, we're getting close, and I think that this day, as we come to the end of the Gospel of Luke, we see a crescendo to what it is that Luke has been impressing upon us from the very opening sentences of this glorious gospel. And this first thing to see is this who Jesus is. This who Jesus is, the person of Christ in his post-resurrected state, and recalling him this morning, our resurrected Redeemer. Now you can see from the very beginning of our text in verse 36 that the disciples were speaking about all that has just happened. And I don't have to remind you if you've been with us the last several weeks about what has happened, but if you're, if you're just with us, I want you to know that Jesus has appeared in several different contexts and he's immediately vanished and disappeared as soon as he came on the scene and it's left the disciples reeling about what to make of his appearances and his quick disappearances. And then as they're in this room huddled in Jerusalem, just as the, the, those who are on their way to Emmaus now have made their seven-mile journey back to Jerusalem, and Peter is in this room along with the other disciples, we're told there in verse 36, in a really kind of stunning um, organization of words, we're told that Jesus himself stood among them. Now, it's important to note it because it's not the kind of all of a sudden Jesus snuck up on them, like the experience that you and I have had of speaking about someone and then all of a sudden turning around and realizing, whoa, that person was a lot closer than I thought they were. It's not that kind of experience that someone sneaks up on you from behind. It's the fact that Jesus wasn't there in one moment and then was instantly there in the next. In fact, when we turn to the Gospel of John, we learn that the doors were actually closed in the room that the disciples were in. They were closed and locked. There was no way to get in. There was no knock on the door. Jesus didn't need a door in which to enter. In which to enter. He just appeared in this room out of thin air. Now, this passage is teaching us something pretty deep about a subject that is fascinating to so many of us. A subject about what is the resurrection body going to be like? What's it going to be like when our bodies laid in the grave are reconstituted, redeemed and glorified at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? And one thing we can say for sure is that we get a glimmer of what that resurrection body is going to be like by looking at the resurrected body of the Lord Jesus Christ. A few weeks ago, we talked about this grand harvest this future harvest that's coming when Christ returns, when the graveyards will reveal themselves to be gardens, that they will reveal themselves to be seeds that were planted with the bodies of men and women and boys and girls who love the Lord Jesus Christ, and that bare kernel, as the Apostle Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, will sprout forth from the ground, and we will find that those dead bodies laid in the grave they were embedded within them something that would bring forth a harvest of righteousness that exemplifies the Lord Jesus Christ and that we will be clothed in that glory. That's what the Apostle Paul actually tells us in that 
wonderful passage that we looked at a few weeks ago, 1 Corinthians 15. We looked at just a little section of it. I want to read for you a section that we didn't look at, though. It's the end of that, uh, of that grand chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 35. Paul actually asked this question, with what kind of body do they come? Speaking of those who will be resurrected from the dead. And he uses the same illustration that I was giving you a second ago. He says, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Speaking of a seed. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel or the little seed that's in the ground, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. He says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. Now, if you can think of it this way, when you put an acorn in the ground, you can't imagine that the towering oak is what's going to come out of it. It looks so different in terms of its quality and in terms of its nature. It's hard to even believe when you put the wrecked bodies that we are in today and the day in which they're placed in the grave completely lifeless that they will one day bring forth a towering oak, as it were, from the, from the acorn that was put in the ground. But that's exactly what Paul says is going to happen. He says, here's what's going to happen. He says, what is sown is perishable, this earthly body, but what is raised will be imperishable. Death will not touch it. What is sown in dishonor will be raised into glory. It will have something of the radiance of the character of God himself upon it. What is sown in weakness will be raised in power. There will be a strength and an ability unlike our present bodies have. What is sown as a natural body will be raised as a spiritual body. Now that phrase, a spiritual body, probably hits you like it hits me. What is that? What is a a spiritual body? Well, I would argue here in this passage that we're seeing a glimpse into that spiritual body when we glimpse the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus Christ. And I would also suggest to you that part of the reason we find it such a struggle to wrap our heads around this idea of a spiritual body is that we live in a day and time in which spirit and body are usually separated from one another. Uh, We think of something spiritual, then it's not physical. And if something is physical, then it must not be spiritual. But the realization when you look at the Word of God, the Word of God tells us that the spirit and the body are conjoined. They're intermixed. They're intertwined. They're one. Both the physical and the spiritual are created by God. And in Christ, through the resurrection, both are being redeemed by God. Now, now what this really means is that Christianity navigates a path between two extremes that we see very regularly in our culture. On the one hand, we have the the extreme of materialism. Uh, Materialism teaches us that all that really matters is, will matter. All that really matters is the physical. What it is that we can access with our five senses. This is sometimes what we call secular humanism today. Even the things that function as our minds and our emotions and as our wills, those are really all those are chemical reactions. They're biological gurgitations, if you will, inside of you that some way or another make their way into your life. But they're they're not really anything of real substance. They're just all wrapped up in physical realities. Some would go so far as to argue even the feeling of right and wrong. Even the feeling of morality or the feeling that something is true and another thing is false is really just socially structured or some kind of social hiccup in your genetic code. 
And some of us actually tend in this direction even within the Christian world. We, we tend to reduce reality to the, to the physical. We tend to think the things that are most important are the things that we, we simply touch. And the problem with that is when we, when we reduce reality to the things that are simply physical, we are inevitably headed down a path of despair. And we're headed down a path of despair because... I would say, if I could get into your heart and mind for a minute and be honest about my own, the things that give you a felt sense about the meaning of life are, are things like, well, people and, and love and, and goodness and, and beauty. Uh, these are the kind of things that drive us. These are the kind of things that, that motivate us. And, and if all of those things are simple Chemical reactions are just atoms bouncing off of one another, and there really is no life beyond the physical. What that means is that those things are ultimately meaningless. There's no afterlife. There's no eternity. There's, there's no soul. And so really, we should do what Ecclesiastes warns us against. We should just eat, drink, and be merry, and tomorrow we die. We should, we should go for all that we can. We should have all the pleasure that we could possibly have. We should mitigate against all the pain that could possibly come. Because in the moment that you breathe your last, it's all over, friends. That's materialism. And when we look at the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, we, we see that the material life is critically important. It's, it's essential to the nature of the way that God has made us, but it's not the only piece that there is. And if you're out there in the world and you're listening to media and you're watching the rise of philosophies and, and dominant ideas of our days, you know that materialism is not the only thing that's out there. You know that spiritualism is out there. And spiritualism teaches that spirit is all that matters. It's the only real reality that this physical life is only an illusion. At its very, at its very best, it's... It's not that important. And, and at its worst, it's just downright evil. And, and this is where we get the idea of, of, of ourselves being really souls that are trapped in the prison house of a body. And the goal of, of salvation is that we would escape from physical reality. The, the goal that we would merge into one spirit. That we would live in disembodied reality. But of course, spiritualists have their own issues. That kind of thinking ultimately leads us to neglect the physical needs of others. The meaningfulness of the things that are here. It leads us to always be thinking about the communing of the Spirit and missing the realities of service and physical need that are all around us. It's exclusively focused upon those things which are spiritual. But Jesus is teaching us with the resurrection body and with the teaching of this passage that Christianity doesn't fall into either one of those traps. It doesn't, on the one hand, deify the physical as materialism does. And it doesn't, on the other hand, defy materialism like spiritualism does. But Christianity actually brings those into relationship in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That God had made the world good, both physically and spiritually, but it's fallen. And I don't have to tell you that your, your body's wasting away. You know that. You could feel it. I mean, just look at us. Okay, look at me. Okay, it's clear. This is evidence of the fall. 
Okay, th- th- that's happening. But you also know spiritually it's not just the fact that you're your, your, your back aches or your neck has a crick in it, it's the realization is that there's something roiling broken inside your heart as well. That your desires are all mixed and disordered. That your mind is polluted with all kinds of thoughts. That your will winds up being driven for things that it ought not be driven for. It, it's, it's a problem that's the, at the very core of our being. That We can't deify materialism because it's fallen. We can't deify the spirit because it's fallen. We need uh, to be redeemed by a resurrected Jesus who is both body and spirit in its perfect form. One who can both represent us before Almighty God and one who can bring us into an eternity that overcomes both the physical and the spiritual brokenness of our lives. Do you see when Jesus comes, he comes to us not merely as a spirit and he comes to us not merely as a cadaver that was brought back to life. That would be weird. He comes to us in a renewed heavenly body, a spiritual body. That, as you can see in this text, is like our body and not like our body. And that leads us to the second point. What Jesus addresses. What Jesus addresses. And what Jesus addresses in this passage is our troubles and our doubts. He addresses our troubles and our doubts. Look at what he says there as he approaches them in verse 38. He says, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your heart? The question speaks to what Jesus has come to do. He's come to address our troubles. He's come to dispel our doubts. In short, he wants us to know it's really him. He wants the disciples to know it's really him. Even if it's him like they've never seen him before. It's really him, but it's him like they've never seen him before. Now, I would have to conjecture, and I think this is staying close to the text to conjecture this, that the big question floating around in the minds of the disciples must be this. Is the Jesus we're seeing the Jesus we've always known? Because there are things about him that remind us of him, and there are things about him that don't remind us of him at all. He he seems both himself and not himself simultaneously. Is Jesus that we're seeing the same Jesus that we've always known? And of course, we need to answer this question appropriately theologically. Yes and no. Yes and no. Jesus makes it very clear in verse 39 that this this is him. Look at what he says. See my hands, see my feet, that it is I myself. He says, touch me, demonstrably, who you remember. I have flesh and bones. Don't you recognize these hands? These hands that have embraced you? These hands that have, that have felt you? Do you recognize this face, these eyes of which you've stared in front of before? Yes, it is me. But in another sense, this is, this is not like anything you've ever seen about me before. In fact, I would argue we get just a glimpse of this in verse 44. Look at what he says in the phraseology of verse 44. As he prepares to teach the word... To the disciples, he says, These are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. And you think, Well, I think you're with me now. I, I think, but it's, it's as if Jesus is saying, When I was with you in that way, I spoke these words to you, but now I'm with you in an entirely different way. I'm with you in an entirely different way. The resurrection has changed things. I'm both myself and I'm not myself. I am renewed, clothed with a heavenly body. 
that's fit for the new heavens and the earth. And notice, I'm physical. I can eat. You have anything to eat around here? Love that section here in this gospel. It seems to come out of nowhere. You got some fish? Yeah, we've got some fish. Can't you imagine when he's taking the first bite of the fish, what the disciples are doing? They're just like, you know? Your mama told you it was not polite to watch other people eat. And the disciples, there's no way the disciples followed that good southern manner in this particular moment. Jesus can eat. He can be felt. He can be touched. He has flesh and he bones. And then guess what? He can vanish into thin air. He can walk into a room that's locked without knocking on the door or being invited in. There is something about the resurrection of Jesus that is fundamentally different than, say, the resurrection of Lazarus. Or, or the resurrection of the widow's son at Nain or Jairus' daughter. You know, what happened in those resurrections is that Jesus gave back to them the old body that they had. The old earthly body. C.S. Lewis says somewhere, and I searched in vain to find it this week, so maybe I'm making this up, but I'm going to give him credit for it. Uh, C.S. Lewis says, says somewhere that we should have some level of sympathy for Lazarus and Jairus' daughter and, and the son of the woman of Nain because they had all their dying to do over again. They had all their dying to do over again. It's like they went through it and then they were brought back and you know, they got to think, oh no, I got to go through all that again. Oh, I got to go through all that again. See, their, their resurrection was different than the kind of resurrection that Jesus is experiencing when they came back. Nobody, they didn't vanish, appear in various places or move through walls. This kind of resurrection is a resurrection where someone is both recognizable and not. Someone has both the appearance of themselves and simultaneously not. They are themselves and more. And in fact, in this case, Jesus is who we will be. Jesus is who we will be. We're getting a glimpse of the resurrection body, of its its non-perishing nature, of its glorified nature, of its powerful nature, of what it means to be a spiritual body, renewed and redeemed. So so we're seeing that here embedded in uh, this passage. And if if we can think of it, uh, this this kind of thing indicates to us that Jesus wants us to know that we're often troubled about heaven. Let's be honest about this together. We're among friends here in this room. Let's be honest. When you start thinking about heaven, you just kind of go blank, don't you? I mean, you know, streets of gold... Great, it's a little over the top, right? And, and um, you know, chubby angels on clouds playing harps, it just, ah, it just doesn't do it for me. I, I'm not sure what it is. And uh, there's just something about it that seems to miss the conception of what it is we're after. And you know what, you know what this is teaching us about the physical and spiritual union of the body that we're in? Even to watch Jesus eat, it means that there's a reason why you like bacon, And the reason why some of you like broccoli, fewer of you. But there, there's a reason why the physical world is delightful. And it's because the physical world in the ultimate new heavens and new earth sense isn't going anywhere. You, you were afraid you were going to have to, to, to get all your pleasure in in this life because once this life is over, it's done. And apparently not. Apparently not. 
Some of us are thinking, oh man, we've got to get to this, this point in our lives. You know, it's just like we're living, you know, we're living for this. I'm living to get married. I'm, I'm living to have this pleasure. I'm living to get that house. I'm living for retirement because life is short. Where did you, what makes you think life is short? Where, where, did, that, where did that come from? Life is not short. You're a Christian. You're a Christian. You're just getting started. If, if, you know, if you don't get your house here, you'll have your mansion there. What, what's the deal? You're, you're not a materialist. You, you don't have to have everything now because you'll have everything then. And, and, and you can, simultaneously, you're not a spiritualist. You don't have to abstain from everything that's good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Enjoy His gifts. Don't become slavishly committed to them, but let them be portals through which you can relish in the physical world that He's given to us, which reflects His character. He loves it when you love bacon. Do you believe that? Do you believe He enjoys it when you take delight in the things that He's made? Properly? Wisely? Righteously? You better believe He does. You better believe that this broiled fish was something that Jesus simultaneously was not slave to, but was able to enjoy. And to enjoy in a capacity that we've yet to experience. Okay, now this gives us a glimpse or a picture into the life that we can begin to look forward to. Now, now all of a sudden, right? The marriage supper of the Lamb is not just a metaphor. It's a reality. If we have a God who actually organizes us to eat and drink in the midst of a worship service, we should not be surprised that that too will carry over into the new heavens and the new earth. So as, as we think about this glimpse into the resurrected body, who Jesus is, and then why Jesus has come to dispel our doubts and our troubles, the disciples in this context, they didn't know what to make heads or tails of what was going on. He wanted to give them clear revelation as that he was physically here, and he was in this spiritual body, but he was unlike what they had known before. He wanted them to grow into that knowledge and revelation. But most of all, he comes to them because he has a benevolent care for them. And this leads us to our last point, why Jesus comes. He comes to bring his peace. He comes to bring his peace. Now, I would love to be able to spend time in verses 44 to 49. Sadly, I won't be able to spend a lot of time there today. We did take a look, a deep look on the Emmaus Road of the teaching of Jesus from the Bible, from the law and the prophets and the Psalms or the writings as they are sometimes called. So we're, I'm going to trust that's still lodged away in your mind somewhere in the dusty recesses of the back of your mind. We won't be able to bring all of that out today. But I want you to see what he's doing here in verse 37 when he speaks to them. Or actually at the end of verse 36, he comes in with his opening words and he says, Peace to you. Peace to you. Now, it is true that peace was a traditional Jewish greeting. Peace to you was a traditional way in which Jews often responded to one another, and so it would not have struck the ears of the disciples as strange to hear from the Lord Jesus, Peace to you. Now, what is strange is that his words of peace bring absolutely no peace. It's, it's the kind of thing we see whenever an angel shows up on the scene in the scriptures. They go, do not be afraid. Why? Because everybody's afraid. It never works. Peace to you. There is no peace here. That, that's the experience here in this situation. In fact, Luke says they are startled and frightened and think they've seen 
a ghost. Now, here's what I'd like to suggest to you, though. I'd like to suggest to you that this is the way that peace comes. This is the way that peace comes. And to do that, I want to pull back from this this narrative, and I want to look at the last three of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus that we've looked at together, because I want you to see a pattern. I want you to see a pattern of something that we have, we've witnessed in the Word about every time Jesus shows up on the scene. In the three resurrection stories that we've looked at, the women who go to the tomb immediately following the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the road to Emmaus uh, scene, as Cleopas and one of his disciples is met by Jesus along the way and revealed in the table. And this scene where the disciples uh, receive together collectively an appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. In each one of those stories, there's a four-part consistency. There's a pattern that we see in each of those stories. And here's the pattern I want you to see. I want you to see that the pattern begins with confusion. It moves to correction. Then to instruction. And finally to witness. Every single one of the stories do this. Now, if, you, if you think about it with me, when the women go to the tomb and they see the stone rolled away, what are we told? They're startled. They go in, they don't see the body of Jesus, they're worried. They're perplexed. And what does the angel say? Why do you come look for Jesus who is alive among the dead? What is that? Well, it's a gentle correction. You should know better. You're, you're confused and you ought not be. And then what does he say? You should remember what Jesus said to you. That after that he would go to Jerusalem, he would die, and on the third day he would rise again from the dead. What did, what did the angel do? Instructed them. And then, and then where did, what did the women do? They ran back to tell the disciples. They shared exactly what they'd seen. You see that pattern? Confusion, correction, instruction, witness. Now think about it on the Emmaus Road. You've got these disciples walking down the Emmaus Road, and what's very, very clear is they're sad, and they're sorrowing, they're confused, and they're perplexed. It's the state of being that they're in, and as the Lord Jesus Christ comes up to them and begins to ask them questions, and as more and more they tell the narrative of what has just happened in Jerusalem, before Jesus begins his instruction, he says to you, how foolish you are and slow of heart to believe. What is that? Well, it's a gentle correction. A correction that came out of confusion. And then what does he do? He takes the law and the prophets and he unfolds for them the word of God. What is, he, what is that instruction? And then what do they do? We got to go back to Jerusalem. We got to tell everybody what happened. They're not going to believe what happened. And they run back to seven miles from Emmaus to Jerusalem and they bear witness to what it is experienced. Now, what do we see in this particular passage here? Well, we see the very same passage, very same pattern. It's ironic, isn't it? And I want to teach us a couple of things as we go through this pattern. It is ironic to think that it is the Prince of Peace who appears and the response is perplexity. They're, com- they're completely overwhelmed and fear. Peace seems like a million miles away and you can understand why. Nothing has gone the way the disciples expected it to go. Nothing has. Jesus wasn't the type of Messiah they wanted, a political ruler who would overthrow Rome. He he was being present at one moment and then he was gone in the next. They're not sure what to make of it. As they're huddled here in the locked room, as John tells us, we're told that, that they're locked in that room because they're afraid of the Jews. They're afraid, actually, now that their ruler has been killed, that 
that others are going to come after them and attack. So these are, these are people who are confused. These are people who don't make heads or tails of what they're seeing. And then they're afraid, locked in a room together, just stirring each other up in the frenzy of anxiety about what is going to be the next thing. Everything is coming unglued. And why is that happening? Well, it's happening as Jesus comes into the room and it actually heightens the confusion for a second. It heightens the fear for a second. And as it does, Jesus comes to them in the midst of their lack of peace and he comes to give them peace. But, but here's how that works. When Jesus comes to bring us peace, he almost always does it by first unsettling the false peace of our lives. When Jesus comes to bring us true peace and real peace, he does it by unsettling the false peace of our lives. Now you think over your life. When the Lord has really done good work in your life, what's happened? You were confused. You could make heads or tails of why he was doing what he was doing. Things weren't going the way you thought they would. Your vision for life has been turned on its head. And somehow or another, in the midst of that confusion, the Spirit begins to meet with you. And he, he intercedes on your behalf. And in the midst of that confusion, a correction comes in. Right? A correction comes in. We all of a sudden begin to go, I shouldn't be worrying about this. You know, how many times have you been so wrecked by all of life, and then all of a sudden one sane thought, gospel thought, enters your mind, and by God's grace you can actually hear it, see it, and believe it in the moment. And that initial thought is, I knew that. I knew that. I knew better than this. I knew better than this. I'm so slow of heart and so foolish to believe. All it is that God has spoken in his word, why was I not believing him? Isn't that what happens? And when you move out of that confusion, the perplexity, the sad and the sorrow, and you move into what I would actually call here a self-awareness and an honesty about the nature of your brokenness. Do You see, when Jesus comes to bring us peace, he always causes us to come to terms with ourselves. To come to terms with ourselves. To look at ourselves in the mirror and see, I've lost sight of him. I've lost sight of him. But he doesn't leave us there. We see in verses 44 to 49 that Jesus gives us the word. You see, when Jesus comes to bring us peace, he unsettles the false peace of our lives. Then he makes us look at ourselves honestly, but then he shows us himself in the word. And this is where the peace begins to be given. It's in the moment where the light bulbs begin to go off. It begins to dawn on you. Wait, wait, wait. Here's what he said. Here's what is true. What's the worst thing that can happen to me? I could die. The world could end. That's the worst thing that could happen. And what does Paul say? That's gain. Why is it gain? Because I get this spiritual body and I get to live with God forever. I get to walk according to the light of his glory in an imperishable, strengthening spiritual life in communion with his saints. Where everything is as it should, where everything is shalom. Rightly ordered at every single level. You see, when Jesus unsettles our peace, he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it out of spite. He does it to lead us to what will really give us peace. And it's himself. And you know what happens when that really hits you in the, in the heart. What happens? You want to go share it. 
At the end of this passage, the Lord Jesus Christ, as he opens up the word to his disciples, he says, you know what I'm calling you to do? I'm calling you to proclaim with, with my gospel repentance and forgiveness because you are my witnesses to the world. You are my witnesses to the world. Do you see, when he comes to bring us peace, he makes us spreaders of peace. That's what he does. He turns us from a people who are so focused on ourselves to a people who are focused outward upon him and upon others. It's a mission that arises out of worship. Out of seeing Christ, we begin to behold the desire and the action of spreading Christ as far as the curse is found. And what we begin to see is we're really seeing Christ if we're really sharing Christ. And if we're not sharing Christ, we probably need to see Him. We probably need to see Him because this is not the kind of news you get and stay hushed about. This is the kind of news that once you receive it, you can't shut up about it. You can't stay quiet about it. It's on your lips. It's on your tongue. It's a part of the way that you live. You know, you guys have been in that experience before where you've met someone that was from your past and you hadn't seen them in 15 or 20 years before. It happened to me recently with, with who was the second pastor of the home church that I grew up in. I hadn't seen him in 20 years. He was my pastor, though, for quite a few years. And we were at a conference together. I was, I was speaking, participating in this conference. And I'm in the lunch line, and there he is. Like, wait, wait. Is that, that, I can't believe, that, that's, that's my old pastor. I haven't seen him in, in 20 years. And he came up to me, he goes, you're, really? Like, that's, like, that's you, right? Like, this is you. Like, if you would have told me that that six-year-old boy that I was pastor of would be pastoring at a church, he said, God bless those people. Have mercy <laughs> on those people. If you would have told me that that would be the case, I would have said there's, there's no way, but, but wait, in a sense, in a sense, and he, and he said it, not in these words, but in a sense he said, but I could see something of the makings of that long ago. Something of the makings of that long ago. You see, right now as you walk with Christ, there's something of the makings of what one day we'll see in each other in the new heavens and the new earth. And it's only in the moments where we're our best and it's only for short periods of time. It's flashes. But when it comes, it's unmistakable. And one day when we see each other in heaven, you know what we'll say? I think, I, like that's you, right? That, but that, wow. Yeah, I saw, I, I saw the makings of this. I saw the makings of this in you. We've got a long time to be together. Let's practice being those people now. Let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, we ask you for your grace to meet us and to strengthen us as we prepare to meet you. And for some of us, maybe sooner than we expect, but for all of us, we will be there. So, Father, today, prepare us for that day when we see you and each other in a very different light. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.